Welcome back, Poddlers. My guest this week is a writer, director and investigative journalist. He's made a handful of documentaries, including the Emmy Award-winning Muhammad Ali, What's My Name? He's the author of a book called Cabin Porn, as well as numerous magazine articles. He's also been tear-gassed by the US Army, performed as a professional mascot and even eaten the world's hottest pepper. His latest documentary, Challenger, The Final Flight, is at the top of the Netflix viewing charts. And so I'm delighted to welcome Stephen Leckhart to the pod for some fascinating insights into documentary making. Hi Stephen, welcome to the pod. You started your career in journalism. Is that something you always wanted to do? I think so. I mean, I'm, it kind of was the thing that I fell into sort of by accident at a young age. So I did the high school newspaper. I've always been somebody who likes to talk to strangers. And so it was a natural fit. We had a teacher who came down with cancer when I was maybe a sophomore or junior, uh, junior year. And I remember because I had written a profile of this teacher, he was my history teacher. Um, the journalism teacher took me aside and said, you know, we were going to cover his cancer treatment and he was getting uh, chemotherapy. And she said, well, I think it's important that we take this opportunity to keep him connected to the school and tell his story. And I want you to reach okay. out and see if he's willing. And as a teenager, it's a pretty big thing to put, you know, in your, have that put in your hands. And I didn't connect it until years later that the, the just having to call this teacher I knew on the phone and talk to him about what he was going through and how he felt. It left a real indelible impression on me. And he actually did pass away after battling cancer. And I remember going to his funeral and I and only years later did I put two and two together that I've sort of always been doing this kind of work. And so falling into journalism as an adult wasn't that complicated. I do have a, a lighter, more lighter hearted story about journalism, which is that in, in undergraduate at university, I did not do journalism almost at all. And I was spending a summer in Hawaii. It would get very, very warm in August in Hawaii. And so I would go to the movies in order to just get the free air conditioning for the cost of a, a cinema ticket. I would just show up and whatever was playing, that's the movie I would see. And because it was Hawaii, they would basically have a movie that ran. And I showed up at the theater and there was a movie called Almost Famous playing. And yeah. I, I said, bought a ticket, went inside. Cameron Crowe, Sony Pictures movie, sold that. Exactly, and you watch the story of Cameron Crowe as a young man, a young boy, a teenager in the 1970s, interviewing rock, a rock band and traveling across the United States on buses and trying to ask the band tough questions. I saw that movie and I remember sitting on the beach afterwards and saying, well, that's what I'll do. I'll go be that. And uh, that's ultimately what I did after college for a few years. Lucky you didn't go and see Hannibal. Who knows how things could have turned out. So you did a lot of music journalism and, um, but, and quite a lot in the world of tech and digital. And I was really interested to see that you had assisted Chris Anderson on The Long Tail, which is one of those seminal books that has created a saying, which is actually, you know, sort of very prevalent in the entertainment industry and the way sort of people monetize content. Did you have any sense that it would be the publishing sensation that it became and this sort of iconic book that it became? Yes and no. So I hadn't, I hadn't ever worked on a book before, so I didn't really know what to expect. I had read Chris's article before I'd met him, and I knew it was sort of a, a socio-cultural thing. It, it had become a bit of a phenomenon at that point, and the premise was so simple 
But the premise made sense to me because as a music journalist prior to meeting him, I'd seen how the industry was moving from hits all the way down the tail. So when I met Chris, I think that's why he felt I'd be a good person to help him write the book and really work as a sounding board for him and his ideas and help him structure it. I did not necessarily think it would be as big and as broad of a bestseller, but it is a really, really simple but in pretty compelling idea. And I'm, I'm actually, to be honest, I'm quite surprised you've, you've clearly done your research because that was many years ago. So kudos on that. There you go. That is the uh, journalist in me. <laughs> well, well done. Working with him was great. And, and actually, he, I just recently emailed with him. He's, he was a great mentor of mine and, and became a good friend. And also, that opened the door for me working at Wired. I actually met him before I got to Wired. Um, and he helped introduce me to a woman who brought me in as a, well, I was a grad student to sort of just get in the room. And, and that gave me access to the magazine. And the, I got to see the pitch process and read pitches and sit on the back of, you know, the pitch meetings and just listen. So I sort of see that every step of the way, I've had really cool opportunities that sort of have opened a new door. So how did you then make the move into documentary filmmaking? It was an accident. I mean, it wasn't planned. A story I wrote for Wired and came out in 2012 landed on the desk of a documentary film producer here in Los Angeles. Like a month earlier, he had won an Oscar for Best Academy, you know, the Academy Award for Best Documentary for a film called Undefeated, which is a incredible high school football documentary. But it's like any good documentary, it's about more than just football. He reached out about the idea of turning the story or could, could that world that I had captured in the story, did I think it might be a good fodder for a documentary? My answer was yes, and one call turned into 10. And the next thing I knew, he and another producer came up from Los Angeles and we were shooting test footage for this project. It never went anywhere, but one of the producers turned to the other and said, well, Stephen might be good for the Tower Project. And the Tower Project wound up becoming the first documentary I ever wrote. It was directed uh, by Colin Hanks, who at that point was a first-time director. And he'd been filming with one of his close childhood friends about the story of Tower Records. So you want to talk about the long tail. You know, Tower Records was a casualty of, of the switch from, you know, physical media to digital. And this wonderful producer named Glenn Zipper understood, I think, based on my background, based on my experience as both a music journalist, but as somebody who'd worked on that book and now had worked at Wired, that the intersection of technology, media, physical, print, and the storytelling there, um, that I, would, I might be a good person for Colin and his producing partner, Sean Stewart, to meet. And what I found, which was great, was that that story had so many wonderful characters. The story was Boogie Nights meets Wall Street. And so I got put on my first documentary to help write it. And I was lucky enough, they invited me to come to set, which writers don't typically do. But there's not that many writers in documentary at all. So really, the making of that documentary was like my film school. I learned, I learned about shooting. I learned about lighting. I learned about you know, how to interview for camera. Got to see how the sausage is made, so to speak, in the edit afterwards. And that was sort of the first step towards me, you know, working full times in docs. And that was about eight and a half years ago. And how do you write a documentary? I mean, you know, as you say, it's, it's often the director's vision that really uh, drives things along with an archive and an editor. So what, what are the, what's one of the elements or any of the key elements for being a doc writer? 
So it depends on the director to start and it depends on his or her experience. It depends on his or her point of view. So it, it sort of depends. I like to describe myself as a bit of a Swiss army knife where there's lots of different things that I can do for a project. But if you brought me in at the beginning where you have an idea, you have a topic um, and you have some idea of the tone and the story, my job is to really come in, do a bunch of research and really think about it and start to lay it out in my head as to how I think you might structure it. What's the second sentence, basically? That was, that was something I learned from Michael Pollan when I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley. What's the second sentence? Because anybody can say it's a, you know, well, the story is X, Y, Z. But what's the second sentence? And the second sentence is, well, X, Y, Z is really about family or it's about home. So my job is really to help provide what theoretically is a roadmap on how to start making the film. Where are we shooting? Who are the characters? What are the big set pieces? And then I, I will write a treatment. So in the case of the Muhammad Ali documentary, I wrote what is, I think, still and probably will always be the longest treatment I've ever written. It was 10,000 words. And in my mind, I wanted it to read like a New Yorker piece. I wanted it to feel literary. I wanted it to feel like narrative nonfiction writing so that we could take this thing and you could see what the through line was. And in that case, the, the director, Antoine Fuqua, had given me some pretty very specific notes, questions, and also perspective. He was very adamant about where do we break the two parts. So I knew I had some benchmarks and some guidance. He really wanted to answer some basic questions about Ali, some very big thematic questions, which I set out to answer. And he was the one who said, I think it should be told from Ali's point of view, you know? And so then my, my job was to take that document and then work closely with the editor to distill that story on the page into note cards on a wall. And so, you know, if you've spent any time in and around film and television, you know that usually there's a cork board and you have cards on a, up there and you move them around and each card is sort of a scene. And the scene could be anywhere from a minute to seven minutes but they all sort of flow together. And each card is a different color usually because you have different threads you're interweaving. And then as you're making a documentary, unlike a scripted project, those cards are changing sometimes every day, sometimes every few weeks. And it just evolves as you sort of find more material and you find and discover new things. And I think that's the best part about documentaries, which is that when you're writing it, you're also reacting to what you see and what you learn and what your subjects tell you and what they give you. And so as a writer, what I, what I love about it, A, is that I'm not alone in a room like a screenwriter forever. I, that doesn't, you know, I, there's a portion of time where that's true, but then it's very collaborative. And the second part is when you see things and have to react to it, your story can take on some incredibly new shape and go in directions you never would have seen. So I think just being open and receptive to what the material tell, is telling you that's really what the writer's job is to sort of do in that case. And of course, that ended up being an Emmy-winning piece, which is amazing. I was a very big fan as a, as a boxing fan and as a documentary fan. It took, a, it took an incredible team to put that one together and a lot of effort and time. So we were fortunate to have the time and space to work and HBO was great about giving us that. So in my career, I've had the opportunity to uh, study at uh, some executive education courses, one at the London Business School. I did one at, um, at Oxford, actually, so I can say I went to Oxford, even though I didn't read. And on these executive education courses, they do this, these case studies. In fact, on two occasions, 
I've been presented with the Carter Racing case study. And the Carter Racing case study is about this guy, John Carter, who has a race racing team and there's a big race coming up. And if his team wins this race, they're all set for their future sponsorship money and TV money and all that sort of stuff. But the problem is they've been having some mechanical issues. There's a big chance that if they race tomorrow, the racing car may just blow up. And then at the end of it, they tell you this is about the challenger, about the decision-making process. And so having studied it, it was then fascinating to see all this playing out again. And um, with the documentary um, Challenger Final Flight, it's amongst the most watched uh, shows on Netflix and certainly consistently in the top 10 over here. And I assume in the US as well. So brilliant that you did that. What what interested you in the, um, the Challenger story? Yeah, so the project started at the end of 2015. I was having a conversation with one of our executive producers on the project, Glenn Zipper. We were just finishing our second film together that I wrote. In 2015, at the end of the year, he was saying, well, I think next time out, it would be great for us to work on something that is just immediately personal to both of us. And because we're roughly in the same age, a lot of our reference points on historical documentaries would be 80s. The moment he said Challenger, it consumed me. And it consumed me because he and I had somewhat similar experiences of being here in America as school kids and that moment happening. And in my case, I was old en- I'm old enough to remember it, but I'm young enough that I didn't understand what happened. And so I knew the teacher, but I, I didn't know much else other than just it was the teacher flight. I I was so enamored with the shuttle, and especially here in America, it was such a huge part of our lives. It was always on television. It was was so iconic. And I still have like a little toy shuttle that I've kept through the years of all my toys. And I didn't realize that recently. And I was going through some things in my garage and found it and realized, yes, I always held on to the shuttle. And so Having had that dream of space, kind of that terrifying moment for me and realizing, oh my gosh, like that thing exploded. Watching that happen as a child also became terrifying because it was my first experience of death. I didn't know what death was. And so the second we started talking about it and we started doing research and realized it could have been prevented, but also realized who all seven of the astronauts were and what they represented the more we started to kind of dig into the idea of who were some of the people that were in the room when the decision was being made. And then in 2016, right after we started talking about the project and doing research, there was a story on NPR here in the U.S. done by a wonderful reporter named Howard Berkus. And Howard interviewed an engineer by the name of Bob Ebling, who was quite old at the time, and he has since passed. But he confessed in the interview that he was still racked with guilt 30 years later And that was the moment for us where we said, well, these people are, some of them are still around. Some of them are still grappling with the the weight of the decision. And I don't think we'd properly seen that documented. Nobody had quite done a big, expansive documentary that captured a lot of the different threads. That's when we realized it had to be a series and multi-part. And that's why, because, you know, up until that point, yes, there's these big, thick texts, but a lot of them are just about decision-making and business. And then there's profiles of the astronauts or autobiographies written. There's been documentaries made about just Krista McAuliffe and she deserves it. 
but nobody had kind of thread, threaded the whole thing together. And so we just saw a huge opportunity. And then ultimately it was just a question of taking the time and being stubborn and not giving up until finally, you know, the project was ready to be taken to Netflix. And we're just grateful they said yes. Amazing. And I think that was the thing is to really bring the humanity and not just the humanity of the astronauts, as you say, but actually the humanity of the people who made those decisions who were in the room. The ones who say we made a terrible mistake, the ones who say I'd do the same again, which is quite extraordinary. What's it like working with J.J. Abrams on a space based project? I mean, that's uh, he's he's Mr. Space. Yeah, I guess that's maybe Doctor at this point. It's hard to say. <laughs> if, you, if you've done Star Wars and Star Trek, I think you get your PhD. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I have to say their company, Bad Robot, is just incredible. The, to the whole team of everyone we dealt with there was so smart. It's not just about being smart. It's also just about knowing when to talk, knowing when to listen, knowing how to give great notes, knowing when, when to be supportive and how to be supportive. We did some internal screenings. We brought in folks from Bad Robot, younger folks who weren't even alive at the time. And to hear their perspectives and to hear the questions they asked were, it was just some of the most valuable feedback we received. So, you know, and Bad Robot had not produced a docuseries yet. And I, I think that technically this is their first big doc project or doc. And so it was just great to see that folks who know how to do great storytelling in one format and medium brought that same sort of skill set and perspective and insight to docs. And I think, you know, we couldn't have had a better partner. So we met in February and you were still, it was still very hush-hush. You couldn't tell me what you were working on, but it was clear that something was happening in the world in that week when I was in LA. As the week went on, the number of meetings that I had started to shrink as people started to realize. By Sunday when I, I left LA, it was a little bit like Saigon 75 with people just desperately trying to get out before the shutters came down. But that speaks to certainly a period where you were finishing the documentary under lockdown conditions. And that must have been very challenging. It was. We, I will say we were very fortunate because a few weeks after you and I met, we actually did what's called story lock. So a story lock means that you have a cut that there's watermarked footage, nothing's been color graded, there's still a lot of temp score and temp music, all the graphics haven't been done. It's a very early raw stage, but it's basically the blueprint for the series. The general arc of it is there. And that week we received sign off from Netflix to say, we love the four parts, we really are happy with it. Now it's time to kind of do your next phase. So that was the, the moment where we sort of had just cross the Rubicon into finishing. And a lot of finishing is actually naturally done remotely. So our um, composer is in Los Angeles, but you know, in minus a few meetings in person, oftentimes we would just hop on the phone and talk about feedback. And then our graphic designer who did, well, title sequence director really, he's in New York, so we never met in person. And then our graphic design team was out of Denver, Colorado, so we never met with them in person either. It was challenging though, because there are certain things like color and sound you wanna do in person. And we actually were unable to do color in person, which was very difficult. Luckily we worked with such seasoned, uh, a seasoned colorist and team that they, we really made the best of it. Uh, and I think they did a fantastic job, but it slowed the process down. 
And then in terms of the sound mix, we, we mixed on a stage in person and people came in with masks. We kept it very sparse. We kept our distance from one another. We ate lunch in a separate room and kept distance and it was harder. But I, I think, you know, we were fortunate enough to get in when we did, you know, and we traveled to, I think, seven different U.S. states last year to conduct 26 interviews uh, over the course of the year. And so I just feel really fortunate that despite how hard it was finishing during a pandemic, we had even gotten to that point. So yeah. we're really we're really quite fortunate in that regard. And it does make one think that for the foreseeable future, documentaries are going to be really important to broadcasters and streamers because in a way that's the medium or the form that is probably more easy to put together than a costume drama or even a contemporary drama right so maybe we're going to see more that would be great i mean it's it's my medium i love it you know i it's a gift to be able to tell real stories with real people it does feel that we're actually in a golden age of documentary making uh, theatrically but with the rise of the streaming services in particular it feels like there are just more documentaries out there and uh, the subjects that are being covered so I mean does it feel to you even sort of seven eight years in that the opportunities are now greater than than they've been for you know perhaps absolutely yeah you're completely right there's so many more places that are that want to basically fund this content provide this content to viewers and there's a, there is a massive audience. Um, you know, 10 years ago, if you had said there was going to be a 10 part documentary, approximately eight, nine hours on Michael Jordan on ESPN that caught fire beyond the world of sports. I'm not sure if people would have seen that coming. And so, you know, streamers are really, you know, diving into, to provide filmmakers and more filmmakers with the kind of canvas to do long form storytelling. So it is, I think you're right. I think we are in a golden age and hopefully it's not a bubble. Hopefully it's forever. And you've done major documentaries, worked on major documentaries now for Netflix and for HBO. Is there some, such a thing as a Netflix documentary and an HBO documentary or, or is it just a documentary and it doesn't really matter where you're pitching it? Yeah, that's a good, it's a really good question. I mean, I think they do have all networks, regardless of if they're a streamer or not, they do have their mandates of things they're buying or things they're looking at, and they have their own algorithms as to how they, you know, figure out what they want to have. And also they, they look at the resumes of the people who are bringing it in. Right. But I would say that, you know, from my perspective, working for both HBO and Netflix in the last you know, few years on different projects, both places have been incredibly supportive. Their development team on the front end, there's, these are very smart people who ask very good questions and give very great notes. So I've had, I've had nothing but really pleasant experiences with both. Um, and then, and that also goes to the press teams and the marketing teams. I think they, they know how to sort of take these subjects and reach a broad audience and make them appealing beyond their core demographics. I remember when we were pitching challenger, this question of, well, can you get an international audience involved in something that is is quintessentially quote unquote American? It's literally a, an enormous um, spaceship with an American flag on it. And from my understanding, just hearing you, it's done, it's doing well in the UK and people care. And I think that that's not a testament to marketing. I think it's a testament to the fact that this is a universal subject and 
I think Netflix understood that, that it could, that you could, something American could be universal. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the thing. That's always been the aspiration of, around space travel is that it is genuinely one small step for a man, but one giant leap for mankind. And that everybody involved, whoever they're from, whichever country, whenever they make progress, they're doing it on behalf of all of us. And I sort of hope that that's the spirit that continues. It don't, doesn't end up being some kind of competitive thing. But anyway, that's... Well, no, well said. That's the dream. The dream is based for everyone. It's not just the purview of, of white men or white male Americans. It's the purview of, of everybody in all countries and all religions and all genders and ethnicities. And that's what you see with the International Space Station. That's sure. why it's the International Space Station. And that's, that's our footprint in space right now. And so I hope that only continues. So we now reach the moment in the podcast where I ask my guest to share thoughts on the, their lockdown book, uh, album, uh, movie and box set that uh, if they found themselves in a pandemic or uh, an isolated lockdown situation, what would be just one of those that they would want to have with them? So movie I'll do first because as the narrative movies go, there's one I watch every year and have throughout my whole life, which is Jaws. I watched it a ton as a child and as an adult, it's my go-to every year. I watch it usually around the 4th of July. It's beautiful filmmaking. The, the tone, the scenes, the acting, the performances, the music, the score, everything on that is firing on all cylinders. So Jaws would be my movie. And of course, great for uh, modern times because uh, various people in power have to decide whether they're going to shut the beaches or not. So uh, it's, it's very relevant. <laughs> it remains very relevant today. That's right. So from the book perspective, yeah, my favorite, this is easy. My favorite book of all time uh, is one that I read in two days and two sittings. And it's called Kindred by Octavia Butler. And it's a science fiction novel set in the 1970s about a young African-American woman who wakes up in the antebellum South in the 1800s with no explanation of how she time traveled. And she goes back and forth from then to now to then to the now over the course of the book. And along the way, she meets a young man, a boy, who then she keeps seeing him get older over time. And this is on a plantation and the young boy is white. And it, of course, goes very South, you know, quite literally and figuratively. But the story is so beautifully told. The writing is so crystal clear. It, it just, the, the book leveled me in a certain way. And so now more than ever, the book is just remains very re relevant. So I would, I would have that book. Television series, I'm guessing I would do Breaking Bad because there's enough of them. And like Jaws, I think there's just everything firing on all cylinders. Even the pilot, I've reread the pilot episode so many times and rewatched it. So I think it would be fascinating to just rewatch and re-experience that series. Album's going to be tricky because I've gone through so many different periods of my life and I'm still such a wide consumer of music. I think I would probably go with George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. I'm guessing. I think that makes sense because it is. A, I think it's a large enough record. There's a lot of music. And the message of it is just beautiful. I think I think I would have no trouble with listening to that forever. But I'll go with that. And if I don't go with that, then it would probably be 
Jay-Z's Watch the Throne or something completely different. Okay, very good. Well, Stephen Eckhart, that's been fantastic, uh, incredibly interesting and insightful. Thanks very much for being on the pod. And uh, I'm sure all of us will look forward to the next project when it comes out. Thanks so much, Danny. Really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.